It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. And it is a pleasure tonight to welcome to the program someone who's done a book that I've been reading with considerable interest and with considerable surprise as well. My guest is Mitchell Nathanson, who is a professor of legal writing at Villanova University School of Law and the author of a number of books, and one of them, the newest just in hand, is titled The People's History of Baseball. Good evening. Uh, Good evening. It's great to be here. Uh, It seems to me that I've got you identified as a Ronkian in the sense that you were a follower of Leopold von Ranke, who may be the founder of modern historiography, for all we know. Way back in the 1840s, he said that the task of the historian is to tell everything the way it really was. Alles erzählen, wie es eigentlich gewesen war. And you are telling us that our common history of baseball is full of falsifications, mythology, and in general, doesn't really tell the true story. Yeah, in, in a word, yes, I, I guess. Um, you know, we, we grow up learning all these stories of baseball, and, and they, they form a, a picture a portrait of of what we see as our national pastime, but really a lot of it is myth, and a lot of it is is justification after the fact, and and really isn't the way things happened. And so what I Alles, think, yeah, the way it really happened, right? So how did we'll get to how it really happened? Uh, but you speak of this history being full, the common history being full of myths. Name three or four of the major myths, and then we'll look at them. Well, I mean, one of them was, um, I guess, one that um, uh, I guess most people find to be surprising is is that um, Branch Rickey, um, the president of the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, uh, opened the door to uh, black players in Major League mm-hmm. Baseball. Uh, the, yeah. the Ricky Robinson story. Uh, name three others before we get down to them. Uh, well, the, the, uh, uh, let's see. There's um, the the Players Association and, and and how they took over baseball. The idea is that uh, Marvin Miller um, had was the one who brought down the owners when, in fact, he had really very little to do with it. Um, uh, the, the founding of the game that the, the game was uh, was was, uh, was 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 first of all uh, a, a, our national pastime in the 19th century when it certainly was not our national pastime. In fact, it became our national pastime. Um, after the fact, after after the, those who wanted it to be our national pastime, uh, put a lot of effort into mm-hmm. making sure that we saw it that way. Yeah, and give me one more. Uh, well, that there was a steroid era. Uh, we, we we look at a steroid era as, as the one that just ended, but really, if we look take a longer view of it, uh, we see that um, really it's just a, it's a continuum of things that have gone on since uh, really the dawn of the game itself, and will continue on well after this is over with. Um, yes, they took steroids now, but there will be other things in the future. And the important thing, I think, is to look at why the culture that, that permits that to happen rather than the specifics of the individual drug taken at the moment. Well, with those four myths, uh, if we can establish that they are myths, we've got the material for four full two-hour programs. So, <laughs> yeah, so let me go to one of them instantly. The founding of the game as a national pastime. You say that uh, we've got a mythological understanding of how long it's been around and uh, how it has meant to us uh, 150 years ago what it means to us now. Right. Uh, you know, baseball was, has been called the national pastime since the middle of the 19th century when, mm-hmm. in fact, it really wasn't. 
um, at that time, cricket, if anything. We, we, I, we really weren't much of a, of a unified nation at all at that point. But if, if any game was going to be considered the game um, uh, of, of the majority of, of what we would consider to be Americans, it would really be cricket. At so that we time. were playing cricket in the parks or on the town greens in this country in large, in large well, the- number? There were there was there was cricket. There was all sorts of ball and bat games as yeah. well that were that were sort of like cricket and sort of like baseball and sort of made up something in between and something different. There was no unified game. I mean, there was all sorts of games. Different classes of people played different games. Children, if anything, baseball was played more by children than anybody else. Uh, it really wasn't a game that was played by adults or or certainly not professional. By the way, and incidentally, can we trace the invention of the game as we know it? No, we can't. Uh, it, 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 it comes from so many different places yeah. and has so many different origins. Um, uh, of course, the Abner Doubleday myth, which you know has been debunked for yeah. many years, but you know even even the one that replaced it um, with regard to um, Alexander Cartwright and, and and the New York uh, Knickerbockers of the 1840s, 1830s, and 40s, uh, they also, they're, they're credited as being the first um, baseball club, but they really weren't the first baseball club. There were, there were, the game was played in New England, it was played in New York, in New Jersey, in Philadelphia, and, and, and all, all, all up and down the, uh, the Northeast. And then the rest of the country played the games that were similar. Uh, there was no national game. So baseball was like topsy. It just growed. Yeah, it, it 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 grew out of all, all from all different places and yeah. from all different origins. And there was a a group of people in New York um, who had an interest in making it a uh, a, a bigger thing and and a, something as prestigious. And so from them, we get the idea of baseball and the idea of baseball as a national pastime. But no. that's that's really not just you know one of the many different ways it emerged. Who was that group in New York? Interested in making it, selling it to us as the national pastime. Well, they were a group of of of, of upper. Uh, I guess you would, we would call them, refer to them today as upper middle class. They were one step below the elite, uh, as as we would know them. Um, these were people. These were men who who had some wealth. Um, they were artisans. They were merchants. They were um, uh, all those types of people um, in the professional classes. Um, but they were people who wanted to break into the upper class. The, um, the I guess you refer to them today as the, the wasp elites. I guess as, as was it a matter just of social status, or were they after big money? They were after social status. They certainly weren't after money because there was no money in it. Uh-huh. Uh, they, they, these people had money. In fact, they had as much money as as the wasp elites had. They just didn't have the status, and they wanted the status. Who were they? Who are we talking about? Well, these are people. These are artisans. These are people who many people are. Um, probably second, first or second generation Americans. Uh-huh. They, they, they were um, people who had, who had either they or their parents had come over. Uh, you know, they were mostly at that point from Eastern Europe, um, Irish, uh, Germans, German Jews, those types of people um, who wanted in uh, status-wise. But of course, they were kept out of these uh, upper-class clubs, which were cricket clubs, um, by the, um, the, the the Protestant establishment. Uh, which had cordoned off cricket for themselves as a status marker. And so they didn't want to let any of these outsiders in because they wanted to use that game as an yeah. indicator of, of their status. So but, these people were cut off from that, and they create, they looked at a different game. You are a lawyer, are you not? A lawyer and a law professor, yes. Lawyer and law professor. I know you teach legal writing, and I know that much of your interest has been in the intersection between law and baseball. You uh, say in and out throughout this book, 
that for many, many years, baseball players were kept in a kind of peonage uh, and were misused uh, in a way that violate by their owners in ways that violated American law, except that the, the uh, baseball owners had managed to uh, get for themselves a kind of exemption from much of the ordinary requirements of labor law in this country. We need to talk about that in fuller detail as we continue right after we pause for a quick round of commercial messages. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. My guest tonight is Mitchell Nathanson, professor of law at Villanova University and the author of the new book, A People's History of Baseball, which uh, is just recently published by University of Illinois Press. Uh, Do I have that right? Essentially, you think that uh, baseball players for a long time were grossly misused by owners who had the, the privilege to violate what otherwise would have been applicable labor law. Uh, well, not just labor law, but 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 pretty much a, a, um, any law, uh, federal law that yeah. um, that that would apply to um, any other business or corporation. Uh, Major League Baseball has been unofficially exempted from. Um, what, what, what what sorts of laws? Well, I mean, we can, we talked about the, I mentioned the steroid crisis, um, yeah. but um, in 1938 there was the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which which um, prevents which prevents the um, uh, 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 the improper use of uh, of a medication by prescription. Um, that's steroids, you know. <laughs> they, 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 you know. They it may not have said steroids, but that's what steroids falls under. So mm-hmm. I mean, we we could talk about um, and and in fact, uh, Major League Baseball has always taken the position that steroids were not illegal within Major League Baseball until the 2002 um, uh, uh, collective bargaining agreement. Um, that's not true. Uh, they 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 were outlawed in 1938 before. Um, Modern-day steroids were even uh, around. Uh, so, you know, Major League Baseball has taken that position that, well, you know, until we make it illegal, it's not illegal. Um, but that's not true. I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been true in practice, but it's certainly not true in theory because there is no exemption for Major League Baseball. Does that suggest that owners, some at least, were sort of looking the other way and allowing it all to happen? Well, yeah, they, they knew um, that the whole reason we have a steroid crisis is because of that culture of, of I, I call it a culture of corruption. They knew they could get away with it because they knew nobody was holding them to it. They knew that the courts weren't going to hold them to it. They knew that the legislatures weren't going to hold them to these laws. Um, there were laws on the books, um, but why, really, why, if you were a Major League Baseball owner, why would you look? Why would you care uh, if Sammy Sosa is getting bigger by the day? Um, as long as he's filling the stands, you know there's no repercussions coming. Um, the same with Roger Clemens and Mark McGuire. Would this have been the case way back? This, How this, far back? Well, there, you know, we, we can go back to um, Jim Bouton's Ball Four when he yeah. talked about um, amphetamines, greenies in the locker room. Um, Mickey Mantle certainly took uh, plenty of those. Uh, you know, there, there was, there's been the different drug of choice um, throughout baseball's history. Uh, there, was a co- there was cocaine in the 80s. Um, there's been all sorts of things. Uh, Has the same been true of other uh, uh, highly commercialized competitive sports? Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at – certainly the Olympics have had their problems. But you know, there's, there's never been um, – you know, in, in, in other sports, there's not that – in America, there's, there's not that pervasive feeling that there's nothing that can be done until the sport regulates it. Uh, for example, in the NFL, um, Major League Baseball, for example, has said, well, you know – 
even if we wanted to, we couldn't, the owners have said, well, we couldn't go and, and, and take a check of the locker rooms just to make, to do a sweep of the locker rooms to make sure there was no illegal drugs or anything in the locker rooms because of the um, labor agreement. Well, the NFL does that. Um, the Houston Texans owner, Bob McNair, did that in 2010, and, and the players, the NFL Players Association, never protested because they knew they didn't have a leg to stand on. But in Major League Baseball, it's different. Yeah. One uh, year, I forget what year it might have been, uh, they announced that Babe Ruth was signed for $100,000 a year. Fabulous salary in those days. And the reporters said to him, one reporter said, uh, don't you re- realize, Babe, you're earning more than the President of the United States? To which his famous reply was, well, I had a better year. Uh, and <clears throat> these days, $100,000, of course, uh, would be an insulting salary for any baseball player. What's the highest salary being offered at the moment? Uh, uh, well, I know that is it, um, somebody's making twenty, twenty-five million a year. A year? Uh, yeah. So we can't say that the owners now keep the players in economic peonage, can we? No, certainly not anymore. But on the other hand, um, the owners are making more money, too. Uh, so, uh-huh. you know, we, 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 look at, we look at the players' salaries, and, and certainly um, they're astronomical. Um, but, you know, the owners are making more, too. And I, I go back to Jim Bowden. He had a really good quote about the players' salaries. Um, I, he made this quote about 20 years ago. And it's only more true today. He said, you know, the players don't deserve all the money they're making, but the owners deserve it less. Yeah. Um, but the, they got unionized, and they got players' rights, they got workmen's rights, so to speak, at very, very high levels. But you say that the man who takes most of the credit for it, Marvin Miller, didn't really turn the trick. No, I mean, Marvin Miller certainly was important, but but the real reason the, the players became the dominant force was not Marvin Miller. It predated Marvin Miller. What happened was the the nature of the people who became owners in Major League Baseball just changed. And, and, and basically, the people who own Major League Baseball teams really mirrored the types of people who were, um, who were running business and industries in the United States for the last century. And as business and industry changed post-World War II, so did the people who ran Major League Baseball. And what happened was, whereas before World War II, Major League Baseball, just as, just as most industry in, in America, was really mom-and-pop shops. You know, they were, some of them were bigger than others, obviously, but most industry was pretty simply constructed. They were... Um, single lines of business, and when you have that is simple constructive business, it's easy for the person at the top to make the definitive statement and to speak definitively. Um, Post World War II, there was lots of mergers and, and acquisitions. A lot, of, a lot of corporations became multinational, and you have big boards of directors. And what happens there is you have people who are figureheads, but they don't speak for the corporation with confidence. And so what happened is these boards of directors. These representatives from these boards of directors took over Major League Baseball, and individually they were much wealthier than the old owners, but they were so fractured they couldn't get along with each other. And so whereas the owners could used to be able to speak with a unified voice, they couldn't anymore. Of course, you know you are talking on WGN Radio tonight, owned by the Tribune Corporation, and until fairly recently this corporation owned a Major League team, the Cubs. That's right, and that's the type of ownership that came in post-World War II, a lot of corporate ownership. Uh, again, a lot more money involved in Major League Baseball um, in the, starting in the 60s and going into the 70s and 80s, you know, Walt Disney Corporation and things like that, um, starting to own these teams. Very wealthy, 
but they all have their own individual interests. They couldn't speak as a unified group, and when they couldn't speak as a unified group, they fractured. And when they fractured, it was very easy for somebody like Marvin Miller to come in and, and, and really divide and conquer them, and that's, that's what he did. And, and he did a good job of yeah. it, but the table was set well before he got there. Another great myth that you handle in this book was that the 1919 World Series, strangely and uh, in a very uncharacteristic way, was befouled by uh, players who cheated and who fixed the games. And thus we had the great scandal, but uh, this was a once-in-a-lifetime lapse from uh, proper professional moral standards. It never happened before, and after they appointed Kennesaw Mountain Landis to be the commissioner, it would never happen again. What's, right, wrong well, with, what's wrong with that great story? <laughs> what's wrong with that great story is that it had happened regularly before that and probably happened after that as well. Um, gambling in Major League Baseball was a huge problem, uh, and it had been a problem in, through the 19th century. There used to be parts of the stands that was openly um, uh, allocated for gambling and betting. Um, and they got rid of that when the National League was formed in 1876. That that went away, but the gambling didn't go away. And there were fixed games, rumors of fixed games, all the uh, every year. Um, and, and the 1919 World Series uh, is just a, another. It maybe had been a bigger game, uh, bigger a bigger stage, but it certainly wasn't anything different than happened before. But it was treated as if it was a one-time thing because the image of the game was was on the line. And so they brought in Kennesaw Mountain Landis to be the first commissioner, and his job was to really sell that myth that baseball was clean beforehand and it would be clean afterwards, and he was going to see to it that people saw it like that. And so there was a lot of other scandals that, 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 that were um, really swept under the carpet um, by Landis in order to keep that myth alive. Which were some of those others? Well, there was a scandal of uh, involving Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker, uh, two Hall of Famers, um, who, who certainly didn't suffer uh, for the, the, the overwhelming evidence, which indicated uh, much more clearly that they uh, threw games rather than some of those uh, Black Sox. I mean, there's, there's um, some of the Black Sox certainly clearly were implicated and, and, and threw the games. Others were not. It's more questionable whether they were involved, but they were banned from baseball anyway because it was in baseball's interest to see that they were all banned. Speaker and Cobb, there were very, there was very clear evidence that they had thrown a couple of games a few, a few years beforehand. Um, but you know, if you're going to say that baseball had always been clean, then you can't come out and say two of the biggest stars of the game threw a game uh, a couple of years before the 1919 World Series. So. They were really they were exonerated. Although Kennesaw Mountain Landis required them to change teams if they were to continue to play. Do you have any reason to suspect that games are still thrown ever? I think there's too much money involved now. It, 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 you know, back then one of the one of the one of the culprits of all of this was the fact that the players weren't making any money and um, they uh-huh. couldn't feed their families and and they were worried. Uh, Eddie Seacott, who was a pitcher for the Black Sox, was nearing the end of his career. And he had no means of income after he retired. Um, so he was looking for a payday. He was looking for some money to, to help take care of his family. These days, because there's so much money involved, I don't think players have that, um, uh, that, that motivation anymore. And if one player has it, it's, you, you need so many players. It, it's so difficult to get that many players. I, so I, that's one instance where a lot of money, I think, has helped baseball in a very positive way. Yeah, very interesting point indeed. Speaking of a lot of money, we've got to pause at this moment. 
uh, for an update on the news and a few commercials, and then right back to Mitchell Nathanson. Though I should say before that, we are shortly going to go to the phones. I'm sure lots of people will have questions they do want to raise about uh, the mythic and the realistic side of baseball history. And uh, we're opening the phone lines at this instant. The number is, of course, 312-591-7200, And for email, if you're listening over the Internet at some greater distance and want to join us via that modality, uh, the email address extension 720 at com. extension 720, one word, at wgnradio.com, or for phones, again, 312 312- Five nine one seven two double zero. Get your calls and emails in quickly. We'll get to you shortly after the update on the news. And for that, to the WGN newsroom and Paula Cooper. Extension seven twenty with Milt Rosenberg on seven twenty WGN. The new book by Mitchell Nathanson, who was our guest tonight, he being professor of law at Villanova University. That new book, A People's History of Baseball, is loaded with myths uh, revealed and myths corrected with regard to the history of baseball, with regard to major events in baseball history, with regard to the way the game is organized, played down to the present moment. Uh, And uh, if you're interested in any of that, as, of course, all baseball fans would be, and even mere, uh, mere... Enthusiasts for American history, uh, you can get a full dose and get uh, great edification on these matters from this very well-written new book by Mitchell Nathanson titled A People's History of Baseball. That it is well-written and it is scholarly is testified by the fact that it's published by the University of Illinois Press, one of the two or three leading university presses in the country, in fact. Uh, our lines are open. We look forward to your calls. Any question you want to raise about the history of baseball, uh, do get your calls in instantly. We need some good calls, and we need them right now. 312-591-7200. 312-591-7200. If you move quickly, you will get on. Get on to the board, and we'll get on to the program. But we need you to do that right now. For email questions, wherever you may be located, particularly if you're listening on the Internet, again, the address is extension720 at wgnradio.com. One of the great stories, and indeed it was recently recounted yet once again on this program, is how Branch Rickey broke, decided to break the color barrier in baseball out of uh, his moral concern and out of his essential... Uh, a dedication to the good, the true, and the beautiful, and thus brought in uh, Jackie Robinson, and we know how that opened everything to a significant transformation very quickly. What's wrong with that story? Well, you know, technically, it's correct in that um, Branch Robinson, Branch Rickey did sign Jackie Robinson, and Jackie Robinson was 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 the first uh, African American baseball player in, in Major League Baseball in the 20th century. Um, so that's true, but but to to talk of Branch Rickey as the one um, who who came up on who came up with this idea that he was going to break the color barrier uh, and and that he made things better for um, for black ball players, I think is is really misstating the point. Uh, because really, if you look at the times, we're talking post World War II. Uh, the, the times, um, you know, they say the times they were a change, and they may not have been a change in much in most of America, but in New York, post World War II, they certainly were. And there, you know, the, it's important 
that uh, Branch Rickey was the president of the Brooklyn Dodgers in New York because at that time uh, there were a host of uh, equal employment laws that were being discussed and, and, and actually were implemented in New York um, that would prevent uh, uh, industries from um, discriminating on the basis of race. And these all came out of uh, the World War, uh, the post-World War II era um, where, uh, you know, in New York at least, there was pressure um, to end segregation. Now, there, there was still national segregation, but of course the states could come up with their own, uh, their own rules if they wanted to, to get rid of it. And, and there was a lot of pressure in New York. Um, Mayor LaGuardia in New York at the time uh, was looking to leave a legacy, and he certainly was very interested in seeing New York's baseball teams integrated. So he put a lot of pressure on the three New York teams, the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Yankees, to integrate. Uh, and and really the writing was on the wall. And so Branch Rickey, um, who certainly was an innovator, he started the farm system, and he was able to make the St. Louis Cardinals uh, a preeminent team in the 1930s through his use of the farm system, had taken over the Dodgers, was looking for an edge, uh, and, and saw... Uh, a, a potential treasure trove of talent in the Negro League. And when you say he was looking for an edge, you also do recount <clears throat> that he was rather short on money and he needed some very good ball players on the cheap, and you could find those in the Negro League. Right. There was there, you know, the, the farm system used to be his way, because he didn't have much money in St. Louis either, and so the farm system was a way to get players cheaper. But of course, it was so successful that every other team uh, had copied it, and so he had a, he worked on the farm system in Brooklyn. But that was only going to get him so far. What he needed was talent that was ready right now, and that talent was in the Negro leagues. And if he was the only one who was signing players from the Negro leagues, well, he had a monopoly on that talent, and he could dictate the prices, and he he could really get that talent free of charge. And uh, of course, if there was. Uh, a mandate that all three New York teams had to integrate. Well, of course, there's no monopoly, and if the New York teams integrate, well, other teams are going to integrate, uh, and there you, there goes the monopoly. Um, so he acted quickly, um, and he acted really to prevent the um, application of these New York uh, fair employment laws, laws from being applied to New York's baseball teams. What that caused is, of course, it led the Dodgers to integrate, but it took all the pressure that was previously on the T, on the Yankees and the Giants to integrate. It took that off. Yeah. And so what happened is, yes, the Dodgers integrated. The Giants also integrated relatively quickly, but the Yankees didn't. And then there was no pressure on them to integrate. Well, the second one to integrate, in fact, was the Cleveland Indians. Right. And uh, we, ju- we just had a biographer uh, of uh, the famous owner of the Cleveland Indians. Uh, here on the program just a, a few nights ago, I think. And uh, apparently, uh, uh, Bill Beck, uh, of course, uh, made the move very quickly as a way in part of shaming and, uh, and, and contrasting to the Yankees, whom he always uh, had a, a rivalry with, if not uh, an absolute disdain. Yeah, and, and actually, the way he integrated was a, was a was a great contrast to the way Branch Rickey integrated. Because whereas Branch Rickey just took players from the Negro League and and didn't offer any compensation, he never compensated uh, Jackie Robinson's team, the Kansas City Monarchs, for uh, uh-huh. for his services. Um, uh, uh, Bill Veck did, and Bill Veck made a point to compensate those teams. Um, so you know, you look at Branch Rickey and pretty, just compare him to, to to Bill Veck. There's two different ways of integrating. Yeah. One uh, was to seek fair compensation. The other was to plunder, uh, and, and Branch Rickey plundered. Uh, Mitchell, you won't be surprised to learn that we got a, a board uh, full of 
people who want to talk to you, so we're going to go directly to the phones right now and uh, work in as many callers as we can between now and midnight. And the first one up is Ryan. Good evening, sir. You're on the air. Hey, I'm, hey uh, nice to talk to you guys. I'm out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I'm a diehard White Sox fan. But I have a question about Shoeless Joe Jackson. I had always heard that he had never taken any money, even though he was ousted from baseball. Is that correct or no? It, I, that's you know, the, the interesting thing about the, about the the Black Sox is is that there was a lot of of evidence that was gathered for that trial that mysteriously disappeared. Uh, so whether he took the money or didn't take the money, um, he was offered the money. Uh, whether he took it or didn't, I, I think that's not clear. Although I think it's pretty clear that um, that that he did intend to throw uh, some games at least in the early part of the series, and then I think some of them weren't paid or something like that, and then they. They didn't. Uh, they 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 backed out on it later on. But um, you know, I, I think the evidence is pretty clear that he did. You know, there was a group of them who did try to uh, throw the World Series, um, you know, successfully as it turned out. Our thanks to the caller. We pause right now for a quick and last round of commercial messages. Then right back to the phones on three one two five nine one seventy two hundred. Extension seven twenty with Milt Rosenberg on seven twenty WGN. And directly back to Mitchell Nathanson and to your additional calls to him. On 312-591-7200, Ira is next up. Good evening. Good evening. Go ahead, sir. Um, I, it seems like the answer might be lost to history to me, but the AL and NL have been in the same league for so long. Why do they still play by different rules? For example, the pitcher not batting in the AL. And when did they... Uh, why is that? Why did they have different rules? Well, they they well they were they were initially and the American League was was initially an outlaw league and the National League. This is going back to ni- the uh, 1900 1901 and and National League actually didn't want the American League to be considered a major league. They signed a peace agreement back in 1903, I believe. But ever since then, they've operated as separate leagues. Uh, and they were free to make up their own rules. They had a, they all agreed to use the reserve clause, which bound players to their teams for uh, for perpetuity in perpetuity. But um, they had they were allowed to have their own rules. Although you know, in the last twenty years or so, they've become more and more similar. Uh, there used to be American League umpires and National League umpires, but now Major League umpires are working both leagues. And, and the only difference really now at this point is the designated hitter. And you know, hopefully one day that'll go away. But you know, we can always hope. Thank you. And we thank you, sir. I've got an interesting email here. Uh, A a woman uh, writes me and says she's attaching matching material about baseball from Albion's Seed by David Hackett Fisher. Uh, Nothing I can do with that material. But then she adds, my husband and I live in Landis's house built in 1877 in Glencoe, Illinois. Uh, Did he, in fact, live in Glencoe, Illinois, as far as you know? Uh, I do not know. Oof. I know he lived in Illinois. I don't. I don't know where. Yeah, but Glencoe is a northern suburb of this city. Uh, curious. We go back to the phone calls as such on three one two five nine one seven two double zero and to Ken. Good evening, sir. All right. Uh, when was the uh, first year of Major League Baseball Incorporated? And then when was the first World Series? I see where. Uh, you kind of answered why the gap was there, but uh, I'm just wondering what the why there was a such a wait then between the first year of it too and then the World Series. 
Well, the first World Series, I believe, was 1903, I think. So you have to remember that the National League started in 1876, and they were they were the only major. Well, there was the American Association, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds here. But there 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 was the National American Association, and then there was the National League, and then the National the American Association went away, and the American League began as an outlaw league. The National League didn't want to recognize it, and so they finally did with a peace agreement in 1903, which called for a World Series, which they played one year, and then um, 1904. Um, the New York Giants won the National League pennant and refused to play the American League winner. Um, I can't remember who that was, uh, but they refused. It may have been the White Sox, but but um, they refused to play them um, because they didn't see enough money in it for them, or they they didn't. They, I think really the real story is they were afraid of losing to them uh, because they considered themselves to be superior. Um, but then after that, the, the leagues came to an agreement that every year there would be a World Series. Um, and that was honored until 1994 with the uh, with the with the players' strike. You know, I'm suddenly remembering uh, not a great scandal, but still it got some real press attention. Was it Sammy Sosa who had the the cork inside his bat? Right. Uh, what What's that about? Is there has there been much of that sort of stuff that is prepared uh, equipment, whether bats or balls or gloves, for all I know, that somehow break the rules but are used to give the player some advantage? Well, I think that there's, there's, there's. I mean, somebody has said that if Major League Baseball, which now has the ability to um, X-ray those, those, those bats, yeah. if they X-rayed the bats that are currently in the Hall of Fame, a fair percentage of them would have something inside. Really? Um, they don't want to do it uh, for obvious reasons, and I guess there really is no reason to do it. Well, what it would you have inside? Why does cork, in fact, give you an advantage, and what other substances would do the same? Well, I, I think what cork does is it, it lightens the bat, uh-huh. uh, and so you can have you can have a, a longer bat, a seemingly bat that would be too heavy for you. But if you if you hollowed it out and put cork inside, it would be lighter. So I, you know, somebody who swings a a thirty two ounce bat, you get more torque with a with a perhaps a longer bat, but that bat would be too heavy. So if you can hollow it out, you can have a longer bat that's lighter, and you can whip it around more quickly and get more force. So all doctored bats would be doctored so as to make them lighter than they look. I believe I, I'm no expert on that, but I believe that, that that's the theory behind it. And what about baseballs as such? In, in terms of them being doctored? Yeah. Well, there's there's, there's a, a spitball doctors the ball to be sure. Right. There's spitballs, and then there's sand. You uh, putting sandpaper. I know Kevin Gross of the Phillies had an incident about 15 years ago where he got caught with sandpaper in his back pocket. Uh-huh. Uh And there's always been that sort of stuff going on. It's interesting that there's some sort of tre- cheating in baseball that we really don't mind, like that. And then there's the other sort of cheating, um, steroids, which we do mind. Although if you think about it, there really isn't much of a difference. You know, they're <laughs> both trying to get yeah. an edge, and they're both illegal, or, or they're both against the rules at least. Uh, and so we, it's interesting where we draw the line and why we draw the line. Yeah, fascinating. Where we Our next caller is Butch. Good evening. You're on the air. No, good evening. Uh, years ago, I talked uh, to Milt about baseball. It was about 30 years ago, and his guest was Milton Friedman at the time. But we're going to get to that in a second. I wanted to ask you about attendance. Uh, Bob Elson, who I used to listen to do the games, was always harping on one million was the break-even point for Major League Baseball. And everything after that was profit. Whatever happened to that? Now that it seems like you need three million. Well, it's interesting that um, that you know if you look at attendance, um, if you look at salaries, you can pretty much track a team's salary. A team nowadays, um, they'll talk about what their payroll is um, and what their limit is. That pretty much pretty much goes to um, what teams usually do 
is they look at the attendance and they add up the money for attendance and they, they decide that money's going to salary. Uh, and so, you know, in Philadelphia, where uh, the Phillies sell out every night, 45000 a night, um, that gives you about $180 million a year. And that's, where they're, that's, that's about where their uh, payroll limit is. But what those teams don't take into account is, and what for them with gravy is everything else, the concessions, um, the, the, the revenue from, from jerseys and T-shirts and, and parking and all that other stuff, and naming rights, all that is gravy nowadays. What teams uh, are going to go out of business? What? What teams in the future will go out of business? None of them. <laughs> None of them are going out of business. Even the ones who, who, who aren't uh, doing as well as some others, they still make a lot of money from Major League Baseball, uh, and they make a lot of money from the website, from their websites. They make a lot of money from parking. They make a lot of money um, from all sorts of things. Major League Baseball teams actually historically never made a lot of money. Um, they, 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 some teams make a lot of money now, but really, up until this free agency era, most teams didn't make much money at all. You know, most teams were drawing five, six hundred thousand people a year. Yeah, one million was the break-even point, or at least that's what they said back in the 50s. But this is for Milt. Uh, when we talked, uh, you mentioned you had a Brooklyn Dodger collection of baseball cards from the early 50s. Whatever happened to that, Milt? Probably my mother threw them out. I don't know. No, you said you had them. This is what we talked with. Uh, yeah. like said, Dr. Friedman was on your show. That's a long time ago, sir. We were talking about the economy, and I was telling you yeah. about how great people were throwing away money on baseball cards. Uh-huh. That had to be early Reagan administration. And it, we were talking. I said people are spending like crazy, especially on yeah. stuff like that. Well, if you want the re- if you want the real answer, in truth, my grandson has my old collection. All right. And I thank you for the call. And we go quickly to the next. Imagine his remembering a conversation between me and Milton Friedman on the air thirty years ago. <laughs> uh, back to uh, the phones and to Dave. Good evening. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, first of all, I can say my father played for the Brooklyn Dodgers in the late 40s. Oh, really? Uh, what, what was his name? Uh, uh, his name was Joe. Okay, we'll, we'll just say for that right now. All right. But my, my dad also played uh, with Willie Mays uh, when they were drafted. to Instead of going to the Korean War, they played together in, in, uh, in the Army for a couple of years. But my dad was around when Jackie Robinson was at spring training. Uh, the, the I believe the first year he didn't make spring training because he was – he was taken right away from Montreal and then brought up to the Brooklyn Dodgers. But the next, the first year for the spring training, my dad associated with Jackie Robinson. And the stories that my dad told me about Jackie Robinson, how he looked beneath the players who weren't going to make it to the major leagues, really set a bad image of, of all the things that have happened through Jackie Robinson's life. I'm not saying that he was a bad person, but I'm just saying that things that my father told me that he wasn't a person that would be encouraging to other players. He was basically, of course, he was all by himself, and I don't know what happened back then in those days, but he was definitely to himself, and all he cared about was playing. Well, the man was under under incredible pressure. I I understand that, but, you know, after a couple more spring trains, uh, after he was playing with, with, you know, my dad went to spring train in Vero Beach for five straight years with Jackie Robinson, and by the fourth year, Jack Robinson name is associated with any of the players who weren't going to the big leagues. And nowadays, you wouldn't be able to do those kind of things. Well, we're not going to end this program with a bad note on Jackie Robinson. But what, uh, indeed, Mitchell, do you know about Jackie Robinson, the man? Well, you know, he was under a, a, an awful lot of pressure. Sure. Um, you know, if he wasn't associating with people freely, well, you know, people weren't associating with him freely. And, and so, you know, and, and it's, you know, when you have 
the nation's eyes on you uh, 24-7, um, it's tough. And, and, you know, one of the things I talk about, which, which was so um, hurtful to Jackie Robinson, was uh, Branch Rickey's um, uh, admonition that he turned the other cheek and, and, and not talk back and, and, and the damage that caused him personally, because he was a guy who was really a civil rights advocate before sure. there was a, a really large civil rights movement. Uh, he, nine, month, nine years before Rosa Parks um, refused to sit in the back of the bus, um, he refused to do that in uh, Fort Hood, Texas, when he was in the military. He was court-martialed for it. Um, and, and so to have to be quiet and not say anything um, really hurt him. And, and, and it, later on, he was marginalized from the civil rights movement in the 60s by people uh, such as Malcolm X, who, who, yeah. who, you know, who, who unfairly called him an Uncle Tom and things like that, when really Jackie Robinson had no choice. Listen, I've got only about a minute left. I can't resist asking you a cliche question. You've done a vast amount of research for this fine book, A People's History of Baseball. What surprised you most? What surprised me most is how 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 much things stay the same. You know, we, I, I look back at the at the 1800s and I look at the steroid crisis in 2002, and you see all of the same things. Uh, you know, history keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. And you know, the times change and there's more money involved, but baseball is still baseball for better and for worse. Uh, and and we love it for all the same reasons. Well, you, my congratulations on a most readable and a most informative book. Uh, our guest has been Mitchell Nathanson, and that book is, uh, as published by University of Illinois Press, A People's History of Baseball. And thanks so much, uh, Mitchell, for joining us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks to all for listening, and a most cordial good night.